if you find a way back to your seat somehow. Um, we're digging into, we're really going to kind of just focus on one verse today. It's, it's from the Sermon on the Mount again. We, we kind of, as we, as we hit this series, Essential Jesus, we keep coming back to stuff from Sermon on the Mount because it's just so central to Jesus' life and ministry and who he is. And it's kind of like the middle of what he was really all about, right? Um, but we've been in this series where we're looking at these kind of uh, seeming dichotomies or maybe paradoxes or tensions that we find in the person of Jesus in this series. And so that's kind of what this, this series is all about. It's all these ways that Jesus, in his person, who he is, his design and kind of God's design, uh, is for us to live in these tensions, to live in these seeming contradictions uh, and to, to not shy away from that and to find God in the midst of that tension, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that seeming paradox, in that mystery, uh, in the person of Jesus. And so that's, that's kind of what Jesus is like. You know, Jesus is both powerful and nonviolent, right? Like he commands the waves and the sea, but he doesn't use his power to force anyone. He, uh, he goes to the cross instead. Uh, Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is, is fully divine, reveals who God is to the world perfectly in his person, and yet is a full human being. He, he, is, he also represents the best of what humanity can be, being made in God's image. And he is both of those things. He's both human and divine. We, we, we've looked at how Jesus is all kinds of these different paradoxes and, and, uh, and conundrums. And today we're looking at this idea that Jesus is poor, and generous. Jesus is both poor and generous. Now, I think most of us, when I said generous, you didn't really have a problem. You got that, right? You, you were cool with that. You, were, you thought, oh yeah, Jesus is generous. That makes sense. Jesus is a really generous guy. He's always giving. He's always healing. He's always helping people. But I think when we start to talk about how Jesus is poor, then things get a little more real, right? Things get a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable with that idea because what does it mean for me? And so as we dig into this, uh, I just, I think it's really important that we ask God for help, or at least I think that it's really important for me to ask God for help, uh, because I'm definitely still on a journey learning so much about who Jesus is. And so uh, I'm just going to pray, if you don't mind, and you're welcome to join me. Lord, I just ask that you wouldn't let my words get twisted and that you wouldn't let your words get twisted today. God, that you would speak to us clearly through the scriptures, through the witness of the church, and just by your spirit, that you would call us to a deeper love, that you would call us to more, and that you would call us from a place of grace, from understanding that we're all on a journey, that we're all in need of your forgiveness and your love, um, but, with, but with a sense of hope that change is possible and that we could actually follow you and take one step closer to you today. And so, Lord, I just ask that there would be grace in my words, um, both through me and for me, God. And I need you to help me learn what it means to follow you here and, uh, God, that we just would, would learn something about you that would change us, that would make us more effective at being a blessing to our community and receiving all the blessing that you have for us. And I just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 5.3 says this. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll just read that again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this is in a list of a lot of other blesseds. It's all this upside-down kingdom stuff of, you know, all these different, all these people who you think are cursed, all these other people who you think are kind of lame or the outsiders. Jesus says, no, actually, in my kingdom, those people are first. Those people are the best. Those people are the people you should pay attention to and who you should honor and who you should be like. And, uh, And Jesus elevates the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think that that phrase, poor in spirit, I think that's really important because poverty is not only 
not only a bottom line, it's not only a net worth, right? It's not only a number at the bottom of your bank account. Uh, you know, it's not only a negative number at the bottom of your, of your bank account, right? Uh, it's, also, it's also an attitude. It's also a way of thinking, right? It's also a mindset. And uh, like lots of people, and what, and what poverty is, that's really relative to the people around you, right? It's, it's really a lot of comparison game is what we use to determine who's poor and who's rich. And so like, uh, you know, I don't consider myself to be extremely wealthy, but like when we think about the history of the world, and consider like the diseases that kings used to die of uh, that we just don't even deal with. Like people died of chicken pox. Like, I mean, that's, like I had that when I was a kid, it was fine, right? Like, I mean, like, because I have access to medicine, I have access to technology. I mean, there's a, there's a phone in my, po- well, it's not in my pocket because I'll play with it and it looks weird up here, but uh, there, there's a phone in my pocket that has more computing power than the spacecraft that took us to the moon. And we're all walking around with that in our pocket. It's actually really common to find those like broke, broken, there are recycling centers. There, you can go find a robot at, at Walmart where you can put a cell phone in and it will give you a little bit of change because those are so common. And we can just, so like wealth is really relative, right? And like progress, human progress is kind of real, but we still have, uh, we still have like a lot of people who experience real extreme poverty, even if they own one of those things. Right? They're still very needy. And so understanding that wherever we are in history, whatever time it is, whatever group of poor people we're talking about, it's being poor in spirit. But Jesus says those people are blessed and that the kingdom of God belongs to those people. That's a weighty statement that I'm sure that I just don't understand. And I want to kind of quote John Wimber here. You know, John Wimber used to say that you should never trust a leader without a limp. And in fact, there's a book by a guy who was friends with John Wimber and kind of mentored by John Wimber where he kind of meditates on a lot of John Wimber's quippy sayings. John Wimber is one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, by the way, a really key important figure uh, in, in just our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and our kind of tradition of the Vineyard. Uh, but this idea that you, you shouldn't trust people who aren't honest about their weaknesses, really, right? Like, you can't follow somebody who's not going to be honest with you about who they really are and who Jesus really is. And I'm going to be doing a lot of that today. I'm also trying to follow the example of a person I really respect named Rich Nathan. Rich Nathan is a pastor of the largest vineyard church in the United States. He's written a lot. He's, he's preached a lot. And actually, he's finally retiring. He's kind of finally moving on. He's about 70 years old now, and he, he, he's kind of going on to his next stage of life. But uh, I heard him say in, a, in like a preaching teaching that he was doing that he says that one of the opportunities that you have when you preach, and this is the vibe that we want to have it as a church, especially anybody who's responding to this call of preaching or having this sense that God might have put something in them to give to others, that when we preach, we, we tell on ourselves that we want to be honest about our own struggles and our own failings and that one of the opportunities that we have as preachers in the vineyard is to tell you uh, I'm really not all that great, <laughs> but I know someone who is who's really helped me. Uh, and that's, that's what we're about as a church. And so I want to kind of just say, you know, I'm still very much learning what it means that the poor in spirit are blessed and that Jesus was poor while he was still generous. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we, 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 we tanked. We like fell flat on our noses and just like really skinned our knees and our noses and all of us uh, in, in trying to plant a church in, in urban Philadelphia. We, we felt like we were called, and we had like many confirming signs, like prophetic words, all of it. We believed that God led us to Philadelphia, and we went, and we gave it everything that we had, and that was not enough to uh, make a self-sustaining, successful church community thrive in the neighborhood of Philadelphia where we were at. And the reasons for that are complex. Uh, you know, there were no, no, no like big scandals. Uh, we were unwise about a few things, uh, and we probably just didn't have a very good plan, and we, just, we, have, we had lots of things to learn. But then we felt like the Lord led us back here, and uh, I don't know, in reflecting on it now, I'm a lot, it's a lot easier for me to talk about that failure without uh, feeling like such a failure because I've just gone through a process of really praying and asking God to redeem that time and to show me what 
what am I supposed to learn? Like, what was I supposed to take away from that? Because that was kind of hard. Uh, like, what, I'll let you know, like, one of the things that was hard about it was it was really hard financially. Like, if you want to see the kingdom come, uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, don't think that this is a get-rich-quick get scheme. I'm, it's not even a get-rich-slow scheme. I'm just going to be honest. Like, like, it costs something to follow him. Like, we left with about $20,000, and we came back with a debt of about $20,000. Like, that was really about where, where we were in that whole process. And so I'm just saying, like, this thing ain't easy. And, and, and just because you're faithful and just because you do your best to obey God doesn't mean that you'll get the results that you want. And we have to struggle with that because this kingdom is now and not yet. It's both, it's both realized and it's both something that we're waiting for. We live in this tension. And so I just, I remember when we, when we were full of fire, we were full of hope, we were full of dreams, we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed driving off to Philadelphia, it kind of hit me that uh, as I'm driving the moving truck away from Springfield with all of our worldly possessions in the back, it kind of it just finally, the penny, you know, that was swirling and the little thing at the mall that, you know, it spins around and then finally the penny drops. It's like, finally the penny dropped and I realized I'm not only unemployed, I'm also technically homeless. Like, I don't have a place to live or a job, and I'm just driving this truck off into the sunset trying to follow God. And that is what it's like. That is what it will always be like. It never lets up. If you're going to follow Jesus, that is what following Jesus feels like so often. Now, hopefully, you don't have to go through everything that I went through. Hopefully, you don't have to, uh, to, to spend as much as I did and, and fail in all the ways that I failed and, all, and, and have all of the... Uh, things that I went through. But I want to be clear here, following Jesus is a challenge, and it is a challenge financially, and it is a challenge that requires faith and risk. And if we're going to really walk in step with him, uh, we have to give up some security. We have to follow Jesus into his impoverished, generous life. Jesus himself uh, did experience need and did experience hardship. Jesus became poor. That is the gospel to us today. That Jesus became poor. That the God of the universe emptied himself and, and divested himself of all that privilege, and he, with his power, became poor. And he lived among us, and he died among us. And the good news is he rose among us too, and redeems our impoverished existence, living from God and having that poor in spirit mindset and experience of need in this life. And so I just want to read real quick uh, this, how, how really central this idea is to understanding Jesus and his ministry and his way of life and what he calls his followers to emulate and do in terms of solidarity. I'll define that more as we get into it here. But in Matthew 8, Verses 18 through 22, Jesus says this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the, to the other side of the lake. He's actually like trying to get away from the crowd. Right? He says, then a teacher of the law, like a pastor or like a, you know, a professional theologian or something like that, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's kind of making a reference to the fact that Jesus doesn't, he, he's like camping out, right? Like Jesus is on this journey traveling throughout Judea and he's doing that with his, with his little entourage. Like they're, they're mostly camping and couch surfing the whole way. Like that is how that ministry got funded. That is how Jesus, that was his model for support raising was he relied on the hospitality norms of his day, and he relied on that practice of hospitality in order to take care of him the whole way. Everything he was doing, everywhere he was going, he lived in a state of dependence on the generosity and kindness of others. And if people weren't generous and kind, then he didn't get whatever he needed. 
And there's that, there's that little story about his disciples are, are taking advantage of the gleaning laws that were written into, uh, that were written into the Hebrew law. When they're, when they're walking and they're, they're taking a little bit of grain, they're eating, like they're kind of, like they're rubbing, they're like walking by a field, they're picking wheat, they're rubbing it together, and they're eating the grain because they're that hungry. Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't usually go for that. I don't usually go out and, I'm not a forager. I've never had to forage. Jesus had to forage. And his disciples had to forage. And they had to scavenge and they had to get really creative with the limited resources that they had. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying foxes have dens and birds have nests, but to the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then in the next, next couple of verses, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now you've got to understand, this isn't the case that like, the guy's dad is like dead and like the funeral is going on right now and he's missing the funeral to come and talk to Jesus. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. That, you know, you know, this guy wouldn't be here having this conversation with Jesus if that was going on. Like if your dad, if your father just passed away, you would be at the funeral, you would be there, you would be grieving, you'd be doing all those things. What he's saying is, no, let me go back and, and live with my father until my father dies and accept the inheritance, and, you know, make sure that I take care of all of that responsibly before I come and follow you. Like, I want to follow you, but I have to go and take care of this thing. I have to go, I have this obligation that I need to take care of. And Jesus' reply is quite striking to this person. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And that's harsh. I mean, that's hard. That is a hard thing to hear Jesus say to you. That is a hard thing for me to read and to say, especially as a family man, like, I've got these obligations. I have these things that I need to take care of. I have these people who need me. And there have been a lot of times in my life when I haven't really followed through on those things. And so when we talk about this, uh, we talk about this passage and we look at this, you know, it, it, we're, we're, we're holding this tension. We're having this idea that, you know, God is a generous God and Jesus is generous and he's generous in his provision and in the pouring out of his grace and the way he gives good gifts to the people who love him and to his spiritual children. Like, Jesus is generous, but he also lives this life that is very vulnerable and very difficult. And when we really start to wrestle with this, we start to understand the tradition of a call to a celibate life within the Christian tradition. That's really something that we don't talk about in America. It's deeply countercultural. It's deeply offensive to our focus on the family. Right? But, but the truth is, is that that is something that many people are actually called to do in following Jesus. And many of the, the most extreme and powerful saints in our history have been people who haven't been able to balance the tension between meeting the needs of a family and following Jesus. And some of the most extreme and powerful and prophetic voices that have spoken to the church and the world throughout the year have been people who they had to leave their family in order to follow Jesus. They had to say that second. And, and when, you're, when you're in a family, when you have kids that you're caring for, when you have needs, you feel the tension of that. I understand in ways that I didn't before we started this journey of church planting and, you know, continuing on into pastoring now, why Paul says, it's re- I think it's really better if you don't get married. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's actually easier. It's actually maybe better for everybody if you don't have that family-providing struggle added on to that because you're flexible, you're able to follow the Lord. Now, that's not what everybody's called to. It's clearly, the ship has sailed for that one on me. Like, I got married, and I love my wife, and we're doing ministry together, and we're doing ministry as a family. It's wonderful. I love that. But I, I feel like it's just really important, and this is something that I'm wrestling with, that we decenter the family, and we center on Jesus. That is important. Because I think when we do that, we still receive a lot of blessings for families. We still see a lot, of, a lot of support. We still understand that God loves families and wants families to flourish. He wants fathers to provide for their children. He wants mothers to provide for their children. He wants families to care for and love each other and to ca- take care of the needs of kids. And I know that many people have the experience of they didn't grow up in a safe, loving, provided for home. And that does a lot of damage. And it might take a life, lifetime to kind of like forgive and work through those things. And so like 
that call as parents to provide and care for kids, that's important. And that's not, that's not something that you should give up. If that's, if that's the station you have in life, you are called to that, and that's very important. I have to add that caveat. But I think a lot of people under, have understood throughout the ages that in order to follow Jesus, you kind of are signing up for and saying, I want to take a vow of poverty. Now, a vow of poverty is kind of a goofy thing because, you know, you've got to remember, every pope has taken a vow of poverty. Like, does that guy look poor to you? I don't know. It looks, it was a little bit silly. Like, that guy, first thought I thought when I looked at that dude was I said, yeah, that dude's poor. No, he's wearing, like, gold clothes, and he's got people carrying his robes, and he's, I think that's Benedict XVI. I'm not sure. I don't, look, no shade on the popes. I love the popes. Like, so, but this is kind of interesting, all right? So, like, if we really think about this, that guy's taking a vow of poverty. Everything that he's wearing and all the resources that he have belong, actually are property of the church. That's actually, like, those aren't his clothes. Those are on loan uh, from, from the Catholic Church, from the Roman Catholic Church. And so, like, in these Christian communities, you find this radical sharing of resources such that ownership is not at the center of our understanding of what wealth is. That in these early Christian communities, you found, you read about it in Acts all the time, and there's a lot of intrigue around what happens, like even a couple like gets killed because they kind of lie about what they did uh, <laughs> in Acts because people would come and they would just, they would sell everything and they would just give it to the community. And it became community resources to whoever had need. That's the radical commitment to loving each other that Christians are called to embody. And we're supposed to wrestle with that. And the gospel is, the good news is, is that when we do that, and when we do that in a spirit of love, the good news is that God is supposed to miraculously provide. Now, does that mean that everybody has to take a vow of poverty? Does that mean that everybody has to rely on the church to sort of like in this commune sort of fashion care for their needs? I don't know if that's really realistic or possible for us right now today, but I do think that this is something that we should wrestle with. I do think that this is something that we should think about. What are the ways that we have been called to share what we have with others and to really in common hold things that are for everyone's use, that can be a benefit and a blessing to all. I think that that is something that we need to deal with. And, and we have to do that in the tension of understanding that some of us are called to parent children and we are called to be generous and loving and caring to those kids that are depending on us for provision and protection. And so I understand that there's tension here and I just want to say that I am still working a lot of it out kind of add that caveat to the things that I'm saying here. But I want to be clear, because I think Jesus is clear. The tension is not between poverty and wealth. The tension is between poverty and generosity. That if we have been blessed, it is because we are, we are being blessed in order to give. If we have been provided for, it is in order that we might provide for others. That if we have been cared for by God financially or with wealth, that is so that we have the resources to care for and bless others. And what I think Jesus is saying here when he says, let the dead go bury their dead, is that he is, he is confronting that man's procrastination. He is, pro he is confronting that man's desire to kick this tension down the road, to say, well, I will... I'll deal with that later. I'll get to that later. I will, I'll come and follow you and I'll obey you and I'll make these hard sacrifices and I'll make these difficult choices and I'll live in that tension, just not yet. Not today. And I feel like the word of the Lord for us as a community and as individuals today is this, that God's kingdom always starts right now. It is not going to be easier later. It starts today. And that we need to understand that procrastination, most of the time, is really fear. That's really what it is. I'm afraid I'll be bored. I'm afraid I'll have to work hard. I'm afraid of the discomfort. I'm afraid of starting because I don't know what's going to happen. 
I'm afraid of the uncertainty. I'm afraid that I will need to trust God. I'm afraid that this isn't going to work out the way that I hoped that it would. I'm afraid I'm, I'm, afraid I'm going to have a story like Josh moving to Philadelphia and trying to start a church and then it'll all be for nothing or it'll look like it was all for nothing to most of the world. And we have to name that fear. That's important. I think that God calls us to do things that are hard. And living among and serving the poor and living in solidarity with people who have real needs is difficult work. There's not a magic bullet. It's not something that you pray about once or you read a book and then suddenly, aha, now the light bulb goes on and now I've got it. I've nailed it. I had to grow a lot living in a large city and encountering need in ways that I never did when I lived in Springfield in my 20s. Uh, you know, like when you get on the, the bus or the, or the rail or the subway or all the amazing public transportation that really is kind of like a sort of kind of wealth that is in a city, in a large city, but then you see 30 homeless people on your way to work, you really quickly get in touch with your inability to be the savior for all 30 of those people. You find your limits really quick. I can't even afford to give a dollar to each one. And I think I've grown, you know, I've, I've grown. One of the things that happened to me that God gave me through that experience of failure and through that experience of tension is, is a love for socioeconomic diversity and, and a love for the poor. Like, I feel like God is really still working that out into my hearts. But if I'm truly honest, I am certainly not there yet. There are so many times when I have just been afraid, when I have just been a coward, when I've just been lazy, when I have just not shown up to be Jesus for the needy person in my life or who's close to me. And I still don't know the chaos that some of my neighbors live in and some of the people who are sort of just like they're wandering in my neighborhood live in. I'll talk about this more in a minute. But I, so I'm looking to other voices. I'm looking to people who are good at this. I'm trying to find people who know more about living this life out than I do. One of them is a guy that I recently discovered named Claudio Oliver. Claudio Oliver is a minister down in Brazil, and he's been doing asset-based community development uh, in this urban, Brazil, uh, urban area in Brazil for over 40 years. And so I think this is a guy who might have something to say that I could learn from. Uh, and I'll post, the, uh, I'll post the article that these quotes come from today. Uh, it is, it is, I think it wins the prize for the ugliest article on the internet because it has like five broken GIFs or GIFs. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's GIFs, isn't it? It's not, it's, it's not graphics. It's graphics. It's GIFs. Got about five broken gifts in the article. It's like a blog spot. I mean, like 2006 called. They want their article back. Okay, it's the ugliest thing, but it has some of the most profound stuff I've ever read on this subject. This is what Claudio says. He says, All of this made me think about the text in Matthew 5 3, where Jesus tells the poor to march on with their lives and rejoice for being poor. Because theirs was the possibility of having their lives driven and controlled by God, little by little. Over these last few years, along with biblical reflection, I have observed how many extremely sincere friends come and go, getting very excited about serving, but soon afterwards lose their passion for serving as they get busy with their errands and preoccupations. And there's another page. Frequently, I see how others pay for someone else to fulfill God's loving service. They engage with the poor vicariously through others during certain periods of time, moved by real sincerity, even if from a distance, and without personal involvement. From, one, from another perspective, I see how poverty takes over the lives of those who are poor and how much it reveals their unfulfilled desire to own things and have access to modern consumption, the destroyer of everything. I see how their situation is built by the seduction of the same things that seduce and destroy the rich, the same individualism, the same selfishness, and the same tendency to feel comfortable and find their identity in being able to own things. I see their same absolute adhesion to a hoped-for lifestyle and a way of thinking that imprisons them to the myth of modern needs, to the mythical desire to evolve and come under in complete and unquestioned submission to the myth of modern development. 
without exception, rich and poor have the same conviction that what they need is something that the market, money, the government, or some other agency can offer them. They are all convinced that they will be happy with ownership, with a full stomach, some with bread, others with croissants, and with the constant flow of money that can seemingly do anything and solve everything. And among this massive majority, there are a few well-intentioned people who extend their hand to quote-unquote include others into the lifestyle or the platform they achieved. This stretched out hand from the top down, that's what we call service. The article is titled, Why I Quit Serving the Poor. And, uh, you know, I, I, what I feel like God is really calling me to and really calling our church to is to, in many ways, just get real and just get honest about the ways that we are serving money, about the ways that it is so ingrained in our culture. Greed is the spirit that animates our economy. It is literally the thing that drives it. And we live in that water. We are swimming in that. If we are fish in this metaphor, we breathe that, okay? That is in us. That, that's part of who we are. And I'm not entirely sure that I'm willing to be pulled out of that water. Right? Like, I don't know how to survive <laughs> if I get pulled out of that water. But I think that that's kind of the conundrum. Like, that's the tension. That's the invitation of Jesus to trust him that he saves us, that we trust in him and not in wealth. Because Jesus, he became poor. And compassion is his way. This is what, this is what, this is what uh, Henry Nouwen has to say on it. Henry Nouwen has got to be one of the best writers and thinkers and theologians, lived a celibate life, took that vow of poverty, did all that thing, all that stuff that Catholic priests do. He says this, he says that comparison, or sorry, not comparison, compassion rather. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, and to weep with those in tears. And I don't know, some people probably know this, but uh, this book, Compassion, this has been a book that I've just kind of returned to over and over again. I had some formative experiences in my youth uh, where it was sort of like an immersion experience. It was like we were reading this book and then we were putting it into practice, kind of helping people uh, do, do home repairs in, in Appalachia and kind of doing character development with youth. And it was, uh, it was a powerful time in my life. And, and when I read this book, I often experience the Spirit of God just falling on me. And I'm, I'm brought to tears just by the way that he describes what it means to really live out that passage of Scripture that we used to read during communion all the time, that Jesus, well, you know, your attitude, my attitude, all of our attitudes, it should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he made himself nothing. He became a servant. He became a human being. And he suffered. And he learned obedience through that. And, and somehow, through his death and his resurrection, we have hope that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That Jesus is all about this emptying of himself. He's all about this life of compassion. And you don't understand Jesus if you don't understand compassion. Compassion literally means calm, right? Like, so, like that, that prefix that's in community and in communion and in common. So calm kind of means like with, right, together. And pati is the root uh, for passion in, in Latin. That's where we get our word compassion. And pati uh, is the word that we also get patience from. It's also where we get passion in terms of like the passion of the Christ. It means suffering. And so compassion means to suffer with. And that's what Jesus does. He enters into our pain. He enters into our poverty. He enters into our need and experiences that with us. And somehow, by doing that without sin and through taking on the punishment that we deserve, uh, he redeems us, and he brings us out of that, and he rescues us. And it's that understanding of compassion. That was the name of our church plant in Philadelphia. We called it Compassion Vineyard. 
because we wanted to cultivate that compassion. We wanted that to be the, the kind of driving force of everything we did. We wanted that Jesus energy. We wanted that, that Jesus-style compassion of really living in solidarity with everyone, whatever their experience, suffering with them and going through that. And we think that that's actually how God mediates grace and healing and uh, restoration and all these good things. But I have to confess to you, you know, there's one time, there's a cat, and maybe he'll listen to this someday, a cat named Julius uh, lived in Philadelphia. He'd been living there for years. He's, he's kind of more or less from Philadelphia. And he and his friends and, and their little church community, they had, uh, they had acquired this uh, empty lot. There are a lot, of, a lot of vacant homes in Philadelphia. There's a lot of vacant homes in my neighborhood too, but in, vacant homes in Philadelphia, is, it's a problem. Uh, but eventually they'll get destroyed, and so you have all these little vacant lots where it's just sort of like gravel. And he had acquired one of these vacant lots. I think maybe he and some friends went in on it together. Maybe the church helped a little bit, and they they turned it into a community garden. And it was really awesome and beautiful. It was right next to this park that he kind of was always like pushing hard to keep clean and to work on and do all this good stuff. And, uh, you know, I met this guy. I, res- I immediately saw him as somebody to respect and to learn from and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to start this church, you know, like we're, we're trying to get some things off the ground. And he said, well, hey, you know, uh, we wanted to do a movie night. Would you be able to bring some of your equipment that you have for your church plant to help out with this movie night? Absolutely, man. We'll be there. We'll do that. We showed up. We helped out with that event. We kind of partnered together. It was good. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, it's like I was just, I was flying high. I was so excited that we were partnering with this guy. We're doing all these good things. We're doing all this awesome stuff and we're packing it all up and it's just me and him and another guy from his church community and I just said, man, this is, this is so great. This is awesome. We're just, gonna, we're just gonna love these people. We're gonna get this, we're gonna get this neighborhood shaped up. It's gonna be awesome. And the way he looked at me, it was like, it was like, it was like half pity, half disdain. Like I think he was trying really hard not to cringe but like I just I knew I had used that spiritual gift that I have for sticking my foot in my mouth. I just I knew that I used that spiritual gift that I have for saying exactly the wrong thing. I just knew it. I, I didn't really totally understand what I had done in the moment, but I just I knew there was something wrong. Well, as I reflect on it now, as I reflect on it now, just my whole vibe, my whole attitude, my whole sense of who I was and my importance and what I had to offer and give, it just was so unchristlike. It just was so ungrateful. It was just so arrogant. It was just so insensitive. It was just so not in touch with reality about what I have to give and who I am. I thought I really had something to give. It's that attitude that Claudio talks about of reaching down. I was reaching down and I was going to pull this, I, me, Josh, I was going to pull this neighborhood up and raise its status and make it acceptable to God. I was there, and I was going to help. I was going to serve. I was going to be awesome. And I think, I hope I can call him a friend. My, 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 this guy I admire, at least from a distance, uh, Julius saw right through me, and I think he really pitied me, and it was awkward. And the truth is, if we're gonna if we're gonna go on this journey, we're we're gonna have some stumbling moments. Like, you're gonna have moments like that if you take this call to follow Jesus into poverty seriously. If you're gonna really pursue solidarity with the poor, you will experience those kinds of things. You will stick your foot in your mouth. You will say the wrong thing. You will be ignorant. You will not know what you're going to do. And I want to tell you that it's worth it. Don't quit. Keep going. We have to go through those things in order to learn. Sometimes the only way to learn is to fail. Sometimes the only way to grow is to try something and be bad at it for a long time before we start to kind of get maybe just a little bit better at it. And if we're really honest, that is the whole Christian life. That is all it is to follow Jesus. All following Jesus is, is just being really bad at being like Jesus over and over and over again while he patiently, graciously forgives us, redeems us, and saves us. 
And that's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel today is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But we have to get real. If we're going to be in solidarity with the poor, if we're going to really do this thing, we have to get real. And I think before we do that, it might be kind of just good to kind of think about some other things that Jesus had to say about wealth and poverty and things. And so we're going to just look at Luke 12 and just kind of get like a broad overview of a few more things that Jesus has to say that are challenging to us. In Luke 12, it says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You can kind of see that attitude of a person who thinks that wealth is the thing they need. They just need their brother to invite the inheritance. That's the thing that they need for salvation, right? And Jesus replies, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? And he goes on. He's like, I'm not getting into that, right? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard for all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. I, he's got so many crops, he doesn't know what to do with them, right? Okay. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, that is his influence, that is his rule, that is his reign, that is his ability in your life to call the shots. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think like all of us could probably just like read that passage every single day this week and get something out of it that's challenging, right? Like this isn't something that you just read once and suddenly, oh, now I know every, now I've got, I, I read the Bible one time and now I understand. That's not how this works. That's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a struggle. It's living in that tension. It's in that pressure cooker of needing God to help you figure stuff out that you learn, that God speaks to you, that you understand. But I think one thing that God is saying here is that we got to get honest. We have to be real with where we're at. We have to understand how much we don't know. We have to understand how needy we are for God to move and God to do something. We have to understand that we have sins and we have sinful ways of thinking and we have selfish ways of thinking. There are so many ways that we hoard like the fool in that story, right? There's so many ways. That, you, know, you know what I really need? You know what I really need? I just need a better phone, 
right? If I just have a better phone, then it won't delay when I'm trying to text people and I'll just, I'll be able to text people and then I'll be, or, you know, you know what I really need? I really just need that retirement account. And if I have that retirement account, then after I have that retirement account, all good to go and all ready, then I'll be able to give generously. Then I'll be able to volunteer my time. Then I'll be able to really do all these things that God calls us to. But the invitation for Jesus is to leave your plow, to leave your fishing nets, to leave that career ambition, and to follow him. And to do it right now. And that's really hard. And that's something I've struggled to do uh, a lot. And if I'm really honest, I need God to change my heart. I just, I need God to help me with this. I'm going to be getting prayer this morning, so you get to wrap up the service, Bill. But like, I need Jesus to confront the fear in me and to help me change and to grow if we can get real, if we can get honest with ourselves, if we can find the ways that we really are serving money rather than Jesus, then we can start to confess those things and we can start to turn from it and we can start to grow and change. And I don't know that it will all happen all at once, but I believe that God can work in us and through us if we really come to him and we're willing to get real. I want to read one more a little passage from that article from Claudio Oliver. He says this, Since 1993, when I regularly went to the streets with a bunch of kids to reach out to the homeless, I developed a spiritual discipline. On the cold nights when we would go out to the streets of my city, I made a point to the kids that we were not going to meet the homeless or the needy. I would tell the kids that in all honesty, I never really felt excited about serving bread to a homeless beggar or making him or her a bed or clothing their nakedness. The spiritual discipline we instilled in, uh, the spiritual discipline we instead, we inst- uh, sorry, instated, I keep wanting to say instead, instated was to constantly use the motto, we go to meet Jesus and the poorest of the poor. Serving, feeding, and clothing Jesus was our motivation. Now that excited me. We discovered that each time that we went out, that in each of these encounters with the camouflage Jesus, the so-called miserable would be transformed into masters into those who denounced our personal misery and who were transformed into unveiling agents of our manipulative mechanisms. We suddenly saw ourselves mirrored in the very quote-unquote poor we were serving. We recognized that we were constantly using the same excuses and lies to get what we wanted, perhaps more successfully and surely with more social acceptance and security mechanisms. But throughout this process, we came to discover that we were the poor. I've given up on helping the poor, given up on serving and saving them. I've, dis- I've rediscovered a hard truth. Jesus doesn't have any good news for those who serve the poor. Jesus didn't come to bring good news of the kingdom to those who serve the poor. He brought good news to the poor. He has nothing to say to other saviors who compete with him for the position of Messiah or Redeemer. In practicing solidarity, we have to get real. We have to confess the ways that we want to be that savior, that we want to be that person who is the hero in the story. But we're just not. We're just not. We're a mess, and so is everybody else. And when we understand that we're really a mess, from that place, we can point to somebody to someone who helps. That's the place that we have to start from. We have to understand what Jesus has done for us in redeeming us from our insatiable greed and from our desperate need we have to understand who we are in the story and we are not the heroes we're the damsels in distress we're the people who are getting rescued we're the children that are you know that superman is 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 you know pulling out of the bus as it bursts into the flames or whatever right we have to get honest we have to get real and it's from that place that we're able to practice solidarity with our brothers and sisters and we are able to become the people that Jesus has good news for when we recognize that we, in fact, are the poor ones, the miserable ones, the ones that need saving and help. And then the other way to practice solidarity is to give. Um, 
And that is simple. Uh, it is not always easy. But I think that in, in community, we practice giving, right? We give to each other and we give to the church. We give to God. If you want money to not be your master, there's a very simple way for it to not be your master. Give it away. Divest of it of its power over you. Part with it. Say, I don't trust you, dollar bill. And let it go, right? If you want to not be a person who is a slave to wealth, then the way to, the way to practice that discipline is to practice giving. And giving sacrificially. Giving in a way that you feel it. If you want to trust God and not money, and if you want to serve God and not money, because Jesus said you can't do both, right? It's not an option. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or you're going to love the other one and hate the other one, right? Like, it's, it's either or. This is black and white. This is binary. There's not a third option here. It's not like I can kind of like money and kind of like Jesus. It's not, no. It's one or the other. And if you're going to serve God and not money, the way to do that is to give God your money, to give your money away. To give, it to, to give it to need, to give it to the, to the service of the church, to give it uh, to organizations that are doing good work, to give it to Claudio. He probably knows some things to do with it. To give it to, to Juan and Debbie down in Zacatecas, to give it to people who are on mission, to give it to people who are expanding the kingdom, who are in a vulnerable place, who are out there, you know, driving away in the truck, like not sure what their job's going to be, not sure where they're going to live, to give generously and sacrificially. And I have to say that this is something that historically, and just like even right now, our church does so much more than this number of people should be able to do because of the generosity of this church. People give, and they give with passion, and they give their whole heart, and they give in service, they give their time, they give their, they give their, uh, their, their condensed time, which is represented in, in money, Right? And people give. People give of their time and their talent and their treasure. And what's obvious when you hang out here, I think, the thing that's blessed me and that's taught me and that makes me know that it's okay and it's safe for me to get prayer here this morning is that uh, these people that I'm looking at, these people treasure the Lord. You treasure God, and that's a good thing. That's right and good and just to treasure God, to make him the desire of your heart and to cultivate that desire, to keep cultivating that desire and to do that from a place of generosity, to do that from a place of really having been changed and rescued by God. I see that. I see that in the faces that I look at when I talk to you all and I'm humbled and I'm honored to be part of this thing with you and to receive that generosity and to, and to try to manage that generosity and to... to to be part of this journey with you is one of the greatest honors of my life, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the way that this church is generous. And generous from a place of trust in God. And if you're not in on that yet, if you're not, if you're not in on that, if that isn't your experience, then my, I think the challenge and the invitation from God this morning is to give, is to part with some of that worldly treasure to find that you can trust God to take care of you that that thing that you're giving away isn't actually what you need, that it's not really going to save you, and it's a really crappy master that will always demand that you acquire more of it. And so uh, we're going to give God what we have to give, which is, you know, way less than he's given to us and not, not really much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and we're going to do that and get some prayer about that uh, together as we pray. Would you stand?